0: So I wanted to, as I almost always do, start with um, a poem that seems to lend itself to many circumstances. A love poem, an end-of-love poem. It's been used as a diplomatic poem, and uh, now it will be used as a getting-through-calamity poem. For What Binds Us. There are names for what binds us. Strong forces, weak forces. Look around, you can see them, the skin that forms in a half-empty cup, nails rusting into the places they join, joints dovetailed on their own weight, the way things stay so solidly wherever they've been set down, and gravity, scientists say, is weak, and see how the flesh grows back across a wound with a great vehemence more strong than the simple, untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised. Proud flesh. As all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given out after battle, small triumphs pinned to the chest. And when two people have loved each other, see how it is like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, and proud. How the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear or mend. When I first wrote that poem, it was that nothing can mend or tear, and I went back and forth for a really long time about the order, because it actually completely changes the poem. And tonight, I rather thought I should flip it back, and I should have said that nothing can mend or tear. Um, But I forgot to. (laughs) Uh, So I'm starting with a few earlier poems, then I'll read from The Beauty, and then I'll read some newer work, unless I run out of time. How long am I supposed to read for? Remind me. For, till midnight? Till, till 15 minutes? Um, <laughs> okay. What, whatever it will be. If I see you all asleep, I'll stop. <laughs> But I myself often nap during poetry readings. The more I like them, the more I swoon. And if you find yourself swooning, just uh, rejoin the next poem when you come back. It's fine. Um, So I thought I'd read a couple of... uh, Poems Acknowledging the Earth. This has been for me very much a year of environmental awareness, and maybe I'll talk more about that later, but um, place after place after event after event. Uh, That has been the intimate crisis point of, of this year for me. Three foxes by the edge of the field at twilight. One ran her nose to the ground, A rusty shadow, neither hunting nor playing. One stood, sat, lay down, stood again. One never moved, except to turn her head a little as we walked. Finally we drew too close, and they vanished. The woods took them back as if they had never been. I wish I had thought to put my face to the grass. But we kept walking. Speaking as strangers do when becoming friends. There is more and more, I tell, no one, strangers nor loves. This slips into the heart without hurry, as if it had never been. And yet among the trees, something has changed. Something looks back from the trees and knows me for who I am. And that poem went out this year uh, as part of the Dear Poet project that the Academy of American Poets runs. They have various of us chancellors uh, tape a poem, and it goes out to, I think, 5th through 12th graders, any teacher who wants to use them. And then the students write you a letter, and a few of them are picked out, and we answer them. And that gets posted online. Those all just went up. So it's a National Poetry Month project. And uh, the letters asked a question, which I've often been asked about that poem, which is the the students who are very astute, wonderful readers would say, but I'm not sure I understand about you putting your face to the grass. What's that? And I kind of knew it would be a little elusive, um, but what I actually had in mind was if I had gone to the place where the foxes had been and put my face down, I would have known what a fox smelled like. So that's what I had in mind. Um, So another poem of of the natural world. Um, I was in residence at uh, the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest in Oregon's Western Cascades and they teach you things there. This is actually the place where the value of old-growth forests was figured out. And the senior scientists who are now there are still there. They were they were uh, doctoral students when they first did this work. They said, "Well, we think we'd like to study the canopy," and their advisor said, "Why would you want to do that? You won't have a career. It's not going to be here in 20 years." They said, "We think we'd like to look anyhow." And they figured it out. Um, and one of the many, many things that they figured out besides spotted owl habitat and, and salmon runs and all of that was that uh, the nitrogen source for these old growth forests was not what they had thought. They had thought it was the salmon coming upstream to spawn and dying. But in fact, it's the little shower on the ground of uh, litter, looks like turnip sponges, It's lichens that are up in the top of the canopy, uh, doing their good photosynthesis work, setting nitrogen, and then coming down to the forest floor and nourishing these enormous trees. So, for the lobaria, usnea, witch's hair, map lichen, beard lichen, ground lichen, shield lichen. Back then, what did I know? The names of subway lines, buses, How long it took to walk 20 blocks. Uptown and downtown, not north, not south, not you. When I saw you, later, seaweed reefed in the air, you were gray-green, incomprehensible, old. What you clung to, hung from, old. Trees looking half-dead, stones. Marriage of fungi and algae chemists of air, changers of nitrogen unusable into nitrogen usable. Like those nameless ones who kept painting, shaping, engraving. Unseen, unread, unremembered. Not caring if they were no good, if they were past it. Rock water fans, earth scale, mouse ears, dust, ash of the woods. Transformers unvalued, uncounted, cell by cell, word by word, making a world they could live in. So for art making to happen at all, uh, not knowing needs to somehow enter the room. you know, full knowing, 100% knowing if we are deluded enough to think this is possible uh, is documentation. It's not art. And it is fixity rather than suppleness. So I think for anything to change in our hearts, in our politics, in our fates, in our art, there has to be this element of absolute, bewildered, baffled, unknowing. Uh, One of the things that turned out I didn't know was uh, the full potential meanings of this poem. Because I had written it thinking about my own life and thinking very much about politics. It goes back to 2002. And I was thinking about fundamentalism and the violence of people who think they're sure they know what is right on every side. Um, And then, a few years, few years, months, sometime later, I'm sorry I don't have this date in my mind, I should, Uh, the poet Stanley Kunitz, the great Stanley Kunitz who lived to be a hundred, the last thing he was doing in his relationship to poetry was reciting poems by other people out loud at the very end of his life. And his then assistant Janine Lentine sent me an email one day saying, Stanley is saying your poem against certainty. Would you would you like me to make a tape of it and send it to you? And I said, Oh, I would love that. So she taped him. That was a Wednesday. It was his last good day. On Friday, he had he died. And When she sent it to me some days later I suddenly understood he was reading my poem in a way that I had never conceived of it but was an absolutely valid way to look at it, which was a poem about the uncertainty of entering the end of one's own life. Against Certainty There is something out in the dark that wants to correct us. Each time I think this It answers, that, answers hard in the heart grammar's strictness. If I then say, that, it too is taken away. Between certainty and the real, an ancient enmity. When the cat waits in the path hedge, no cell of her body is not waiting. This is how she is able so completely to disappear. I would like to enter the silence portion, as she does, to live amid the great vanishing, as a cat must live, one shadow fully at ease inside another. I always bring too much and then start sorting at the podium. Um, Another poem mildly about not knowing and puzzlement. Vinegar and oil. Wrong solitude vinegars the soul, right solitude oils it. How fragile we are between the few good moments, coming and going unfinished, puzzled by fate, like the half-carved relief of a fallen donkey above a church door in Finland. Uh, I was quite surprised when somebody told me, and I checked it out, and it's perfectly true, uh, how fragile we are between the few good moments seems to be my most quoted line. It's been circling the world, mostly from, it seems, young person to young person for years now. Um, Okay. And uh, this, this again, like... That first one I read is a poem that gets applied in a lot of different circumstances. I wrote it because I myself personally needed what it was talking about. I also wrote it in equal awareness of um, its ecological uh, verities or hopes. And then I started finding out that it's been posted uh, in hospices all over America. And uh, then it was used as the uh, epigraph for a first book of short stories by a woman writer from Zimbabwe. Uh, And when I asked her why, I got the permissions request, and, and I asked the editor if they would pass on an email saying, you know, how did you find it and why are you choosing it? Because I hadn't read the short stories, it was just, can we use this poem? And uh, when Patina gapa uh, emailed me back, she said, oh, you know, a friend sent it to me and I thought it perfectly embodied the spirit of the people of Zimbabwe. Um, well, uh, that made me really happy. So anyhow, I read it today for the post-fire people. Uh, especially the ones who had studios that various things have been taken from them. Optimism. More and more I have come to admire resilience. Not the simple resistance of a pillow, whose foam returns over and over to the same shape, but the sinuous tenacity of a tree. Finding the light newly blocked on one side, it turns in another A blind intelligence, true, but out of such persistence arose turtles, rivers, mitochondria, figs, all this resinous, unretractable earth. So I'll read you some poems now from The Beauty. Uh, The first poem in the book uh, has the title Fado, if any of you don't know what a fado is, it's a Portuguese song of love and longing, uh, probably much older, but first documented uh, in the 19th century. Uh, It was the music of the dock workers, sailors, prostitutes, outcasts of Lisbon, and uh, poems trying to figure out what do we do with these hard lives we live. What is the grief? What is the solace? I found out after the book was published, which is a little later than one ought, uh, I was asked to write about a poem for the Wall Street Journal's culture page. And I went looking for a photo online because it was going to go up online and I could give people a URL and they could hear a photo. And in that hunting for the photo, I came across... Uh, something telling me what I had not consciously known, which was that the word fado is also just the normal Portuguese word for fate. And this book that I had put it at the front of is threaded through with references to fate. Um, I should pretend, I suppose, that I knew, um, instead of confessing that I didn't. Fado. A man reaches close and lifts a quarter from inside a girl's ear. From her hands takes a dove she didn't know was there. Which amazes more, you may wonder, the quarter's serrated murmur against the thumb, or the dove's knuckled silence, that he found them, or that she never had, or that in Portugal, this same half-stopped moment, it's almost dawn. And a woman in a wheelchair is singing a fado that puts every life in the room on one pan of a scale, itself on the other, and the copper bowls balance. So that's a kind of preface poem. And then the first section of the book has many poems in it whose titles begin with the word my, my this or that. And the couple whose titles don't begin with that, their titles used to begin with that. And, you know, each poem is looking at its own subject independently. But when I put them all together, when I realized I had written this series of my this, my that, um, I began to see that they were also, as a group, exploring uh, this whole idea of self, of my, and how, permeable it is, and how uh, it is simply a descriptive membrane some of the time, and yet how dear it is to us. And, you know, our lives are given into our own hands to take care of. So it's looking at that two-sided question of of, uh, what what is a self, anyhow. And I'm not going to read you, you know, all of them, but a, a few. My skeleton... My skeleton, who once ached with your own growing larger, are now each year imperceptibly smaller, lighter, absorbed by your own concentration. When I danced, you danced. When you broke, I. And so it was lying down, walking, climbing the tiring stairs. Your jaws, my bread. Someday you What is left of you will be flensed of this marriage. Angular wrist bones arthritis, cracked harp of ribcage, blunt of heel, opened bowl of the skull, twin platters of pelvis. Each of you will leave me behind, at last serene. What did I know of your days, your nights? I who held you all my life inside my hands, and thought they were empty. You who held me all your life in your hands as a new mother holds her own unblanketed child, not thinking at all. Uh, This next one came, as so many poems do, from the uh, Tuesday Science Times section. I read an article about them having figured out why we itch, and I just found this tremendously provocative. Um, and it, it goes on to go from, from itch to uh, the microbiome, still cutting edge, uh, which is uh, going to change the medicine of the future, there's no question about it, it's almost here now. Um, but basically, the microbiome is all those other, you know, uh, critters that live inside of us, and in fact, uh, create our mood, our intelligence, our our comfort and discomfort, our immune system. Um, all, all of those things are a very shared endeavor. Um, uh, So this poem ran in the New Yorker, and they have you tape your poems. And the night before I was going into the studio, I suddenly realized I had no idea how to pronounce the protein in it. And so I hastily sent emails to two different biologist friends, hoping that they'd get back to me in time. And uh, the answer was, either way is fine. (laughs) Um, My proteins. Oh, the last thing I have to tell you, proteins take their name from the Greek god Proteus. They work by folding and unfolding. That's how they do what they do. My proteins. They have discovered, they say, the protein of itch, natureotic polypeptide B, and that it travels its own distinct pathway inside my spine, as do pain, pleasure, and heat. A body, it seems, is a highway a cloverleaf crossing, well built, well traversed. Some of me going north, some going south. Ninety percent of my cells, they have discovered, are not my own person; they are other beings inside me. As ninety-six percent of my life is not my life, yet I, they say, am they. My bacteria and yeasts, my father and mother, grandparents, lovers, my drivers talking on cell phones, my subways and bridges, my thieves, my police who chase myself night and day. My proteins, apparently also me, fold the shirts. I find in this crowded metropolis a quiet corner where I build of not-me Lego blocks, a bench, pigeons, a sandwich of rye bread, mustard, and cheese. It is me, and is not, the hunger that makes the sandwich good. It is not me, then is, the sandwich, a mystery neither of us can fold, unfold, or consume. This next one is um, a poem, as ever, ever since the events of 2001, including three days after that happened, a poem that I wrote here, um, and probably would not have written had I not been given the afternoon of that very day the task of leading this group. I don't know what to call it. Taking notice, being together, trying to take in, trying to find some way to respond and go on. So many people here were from New York, and yeah, anyone from anywhere. It was just such a staggering unbalancing. Um, but having, I was supposed to give another talk that afternoon, and instead I did this. And having to figure out so quickly what do I feel, what do I think, um, led me to write just a couple of days later a poem that became, for me, abidingly, my response. Um, And I'm not going to tell you that poem, although I probably have it memorized. I don't have it with me. Um, But it was basically foreseeing that probably what was going to happen would be violence, answering violence, and probably that was going to continue and continue and continue, and so, as we have seen, it came to pass. Um, so this is one of many poems written since then in the background of it, this awareness of perennial war. Uh, in this case, in the shape of an artichoke. My species. Even a small purple artichoke, boiled in its own bittered and darkening waters, grows tender, grows tender and sweet. Patience, I think, my species, keep testing the spiny leaves, the spiny heart. You know, maybe if we boil long enough, we will grow tender and sweet. Uh, so this little poem has a baffling title. That's because it used to be a longer poem with a kitchen towel in it. Kitchen towel's no longer in it. Um, a cottony fate. Long ago, someone told me avoid or It troubles the mind, as a held-out piece of meat disturbs a dog. Now I too am sixty. There was no other life. That was a piece of writing advice uh, when I was 20. Don't use or in your poems. Um, And I do use or sometimes in my poems, including, of course, in that one. Um, But I look really hard. And I I always understood why uh, it was suggested to me. Um, Let's see. I want to save some time to read some new unpublished poems. Okay, so here's one for the people who are uh, in northeast snowy climates year-round. A chair in snow. A chair in snow should be like any other object, whited and rounded. And yet, a chair in snow is always sad. More than a bed, more than a hat or house, a chair is shaped for just one thing. To hold a soul, its quick and few bendable hours. Perhaps a king, not to hold snow, not to hold flowers. Like the small hole by the pathside something lives in. Like the small hole by the pathside something lives in, in me are lives I do not know the names of, nor the fates of, nor the hungers of, or what they eat. They eat of me, of small and blemished apples in low fields of me, whose rocky streams and droughts I do not drink. And in my streets, the narrow ones, unlabeled on the self-map, they follow stairs down music ears can't follow. And in my tongue borrowed by darkness, in hours uncounted by the self-clock, they speak in restless syllables of other losses, other loves. There too have been the hard extinctions, missing birds once feasted on and feasting there, too, must be ideas, like loud machines with tungsten bits that grind the day. A few escape, a mercy. They leave behind small holes that something unweighed by the self-scale lives in. I thought this one was a good one, this next one for uh, people trying to make art day after day. And we all have bad days. Uh, when it comes to that. As a hammer speaks to a nail. When all else fails, fail boldly with conviction. As a hammer speaks to a nail, or a lamp left on in daylight, say one. If two does not follow, say three. If that fails, say life, say future. Lacking future, try bucket. Lacking iron, try shadow. If shadow too fails, if your voice falls and falls and keeps falling, meets only air and silence, say one again, but say it with greater conviction, as a nail speaks to a picture, as a hammer left on in daylight. Uh, This is a very short poem. Two Linen Handkerchiefs. How can you have been dead 12 years and these still? My life was the size of my life. My life was the size of my life. Its rooms were room-sized. Its soul was the size of a soul. In its background, mitochondria hummed, Above it, sun, clouds, snow, the transit of stars and planets. It rode elevators, bullet trains, various airplanes, a donkey. It wore socks, shirts, its own ears and nose. It ate, it slept, it opened and closed its hands, its windows. Others I know had lives larger. Others I know had lives shorter. The depth of lives, too, is different. There were times my life and I made jokes together. There were times we made bread. Once I grew moody and distant, I told my life I would like some time. I would like to try seeing others. In a week, my empty suitcase and I returned. I was hungry then. And my life, my life, too, was hungry. We could not keep our hands off, our clothes on, our tongues from. Now I throw confetti and move to newer poems. (laughs) Yes, it's really gin. (laughs) You've all heard the story that somebody once played a trick at the 92nd Street Y reading, and the water glass was indeed filled with gin. Um, Not kind... Sorry, I'm I'm leafing through this because it's the manuscript, too. There's going to be an artist's book done by one of those uh, fine presses that they do 25 copies or 26 copies and sell them for enormous amounts of money um, with beautiful mezzotints by uh, an artist named Holly Downing. Uh, so, So I'm trying to keep this manuscript together so I don't lose track of it. This particular poem was written in January of this year, which was one of my places of seeing the environmental and other crises uh, rather intimately. I was on Captiva Island in Florida, uh, the Rauschenberg Foundation, and it was the rainiest Florida January in history. The island is only five feet high, and so we were wading between buildings, I mean, literally, you would just pull your skirt up or your pants up to your knees, and and you know, be calf deep in water as you walked around, and then a little of the way in. So I I like to get in water when I can. Um, so I was the only person who was swimming because it was a little chilly for. February, for for, uh, January in in Florida. But I was getting in the ocean and getting in on the bayside. And then one day I was in on the bayside and I looked at the water and I just said to myself, I don't know what's going on, but i got to get out of this. It just looked really different. And the next day the news came that Florida had emptied its central lake, Lake Okeechobee, which is the... uh, sinkhole for a huge amount of uh, pesticides, fertilizer, toxic sludge, the sugarcane industry. Uh, just, it's, it's a very, very badly polluted lake, um, which uh, they voted a bond on 12 years ago to fix, and the money never got spent because of Florida politics. Uh, and a couple of days after that, dead fish began washing up on shore, more and more and more of them. As meanwhile you're still in a tropical paradise where the osprey are building their nests and the ibis and the pelicans and the herons and uh, the dolphins are are all going about their business. Uh, And the news was full, as it has been for a long time, of stories about uh, the refugees landing dead or alive on the shores of Lesbos. And and all of that came together, including one morning, one of the more astute people there said, oh, there's a five minute window when if we get up really early, you can see the space station. And so some of us got up before dawn and all of that turned into this poem with a very long title. Day beginning with seeing the international space station and a full moon over the Gulf of Mexico and all its invisible fishes. None of this had to happen. Not Florida, not the ibis's beak, not water, not the horseshoe crab's empty body, and not the living starfish. Evolution might have turned left at the corner and gone down another street entirely. The asteroid might have missed. The seams of limestone need not have been susceptible to sand and mangroves. The radio might have found a different music. The hips of one man and the hips of another might have stood beside each other on a bus in Aleppo and recognized themselves as long-lost brothers. The key could have broken off in the lock and the nail can refused its lid. I might have been the fish the brown pelican swallowed. You might have been the way the moon kept not setting long after we thought it would, long after the sun was catching inside the low wave curls coming in at a certain angle. The light might not have been eaten again by its moving. If the unbearable were not weightless, we might yet buckle under the grief of what hasn't changed yet. Across the world, a man pulls a woman from the water, from which the leapt-from, overfilled boat has entirely vanished. From the water pulls one child, another. Both are living, and both will continue to live. This did not have to happen. No part of this had to happen and a second poem uh, from that five foot high island. This one sounds a little different than most of what I've read you in that it's a little more driven not by regular rhyme but by, by sound as an engine and some rhyme. Um, Ledger. Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin is 3,592 measures. A voice kept far from feeling is heard as measured. What's wanted in desperate times are desperate measures. Pushkin's unfinished Onegin, 5,446 lines. No visible tears measure the pilot's leaf. I'm sorry, I'm gonna stop because I forgot to tell you the word lidar. Uh, Lidar is a kind of radar that measures height very, very accurately. No visible tears measure the pilot's grief as she lidars the height of an island, five feet, 50 its highest leaf. She logs the years, the weathers, the tree has left. A million fired clay bones, animal, human, set down in a field as protest, measure 400 yards long, Sixty yards wide weigh 112 tons. The length and weight and voices of the bereft. Bees do not question the sweetness of what lies below them. One measure of distance is meters. Another is li. Ten thousand li can be translated far. For the exiled, home can be translated Then, translated, scar. One liter of Polish vodka holds 12 pounds of potatoes. What we care about most we call beyond measure. What matters most we say counts. Height now is treasure. On the scale of 1 to 10, where is 11? Ask all you wish. No twenty-fifth hour will be given. Measuring mounts like some western bar's mounted elk head are catalogued, vanishing, unfinished heaven. One more from this chapbook. Let them not say. Let them not say we did not see it. We saw. Let them not say we did not hear it. We heard. Let them not say they did not taste it. We ate. We tasted. Let them not say it was not spoken, not written. We spoke. We witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say as they must say something A kerosene beauty, it burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. And I'm going to finish with a set of pretty short poems. Um, Most of them take their way of speaking from a famous poem, Uh, The Roman Emperor Hadrian at the turn of the millennium in the first century uh, wrote only one poem we know of on his deathbed uh, bidding goodbye to his life and he addressed it with great tenderness as little soul. And I don't know if it's actually allowed to borrow Hadrian's little soul but I could not find anything else that had the feeling that that phrase has. The title of this first one is in Latin, uh, Amor Fati, uh, Love of Fate, Embrace of What Happens to You. Um, So, Amor Fati. Little soul, you have wandered lost a long time. The woods all dark now, birded and eyed. Then a light, a cabin, a fire, a door standing open. The fairy tales warn you do not go in. You who would eat will be eaten. You go in, you quicken. You want to have feet, you want to have eyes, you want to have fears. Snow. Little soul, for you too, death is coming. Was there something you thought you needed to do? Snow does not walk into a room and wonder why. Harness Little soul, you and I will become the memory of a memory of a memory. A horse released of the traces forgets the weight of the wagon. Wood, salt, salt. Little soul, do you remember? You once walked over wooden boards to a house that sat on stilts in the sea. It was early. The sun painted brightness onto the water, and wherever you sat, that path led directly to you. Some mornings the sea road was muted, scratched tin. Some mornings blinding. Then it would leave. Little soul, it is strange. Even now, it is early. And the final poem, very short. I said I said I believed a world without you, unimaginable now cutting its flowers to go with you into the fire. Thank you very much.